We're back with a new conversation on the Retirement Wisdom Podcast. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Joe Casey. If you're listening to this podcast, odds are high that you're thinking a lot about your future, whether you're contemplating retiring, going into semi-retirement, perhaps a second act career, future you is on your mind. And that's a good thing because it can help you really create the next chapter that you really desire. There's research showing that getting a vivid picture of future you can really help you make better decisions today that'll set you up for what you're looking to create in the future. Our guest today is Hal Hirschfield. He's the author of the new book, Your Future Self, How to Make Tomorrow Better Today. Hal is a professor of marketing, behavioral decision-making, and psychology at UCLA's Anderson School of Management, where he has won numerous awards for his teaching and his research. His research on future selves has received widespread attention in outlets such as NPR, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, my hometown newspaper, The Boston Globe, The Washington Post, and The Atlantic. His research has been published in prestigious business, psychology, and general science academic journals, as well as in the Harvard Business Review, Scientific American, and Psychology Today. Hal, thanks so much for joining us. Joe, I'm happy to be here. Thank you. So how can envisioning our future self help us make better decisions today? Well, you know, envisioning our future self, it's a difficult endeavor because the future is so, so abstract and it's so uncertain and there's so many unknowns. But envisioning our future self and really trying to paint a more concrete picture of us can help us by creating sort of an anchor point or almost an aid for our imagination in making decisions that have consequences now, as well as consequences for later, for wherever that future self is is existing. And what makes it challenging? Okay, there, there's so many things that make it challenging. I mean, we could probably spend the next 30 to 60 minutes talking about that. But look, I'll tell you a couple of things. One is that we're anchored on the present. The present is not to sound too sort of zen about it, but the present is the time period in which we live. <laughs> and it makes sense that that's what we focus on. And so the future is some later period and it's not necessarily going to be prioritized. And another thing that makes it very challenging to really envision the future is that the future is inherently abstract. And some future self, some future version of me can represent an average of possibilities, an amalgamation of possibilities. There's not a specific one. There's a specific me right now. And the future can take many different paths. And then to try to think about them, it can almost be overwhelming. And we'd be forgiven for just saying, putting up our hands and burying our head in the sand and focusing on right now. <laughs> so how can people become better connected with their future selves? So th there's a few things that I like to think about. So one is to try to really figure out ways that we can ramp up the vividness of our future self. You first asked about envisioning our future selves. Well, what can we do to make that future self more vivid and more concrete and less abstract? One thing we can do is write a letter to our future self and then write a letter back from our future self. And I think I really want to stress the back part because it kind of forces us to step into the shoes of our future self and see the world through their eyes. There's also like other tools. We can play around with age progression technology. Well, I've done this in some of my research. That can work to a certain extent, though I would sort of question whether or not that's going to be effective for somebody who's like in retirement already and making decisions about later in life. The reason I bring that up though is because it's sort of another version of making that future self more vivid and more emotional. I would also then say 
let's just like engage in some visualization exercises where we try to think about deeply what's going to be my life like? What's my life going to be like? How will I spend my time? Who will I spend it with? Am I working some of the time or not all the time? Am I traveling? What am I doing with myself? I think most people in the retirement space, in the financial planning space, they think of future selves. It's not like this is a foreign concept, but it's always done it for sort of an, an implicit level. You talk about retirement, you talk about decumulation strategies, you talk about annuities, whatever. It's all sort of done at a very abstract, implicit way. But to like really bring the self back into the conversation, who am I? What am I going to be doing? That, that's where I think we can start to see some, some change in the way we really think about that period of time. And I know so you point out in the book that there's a risk in focusing too much on future you at the expense mm-hmm. of present you. And it's really important to celebrate and enjoy the, the present. And some of our listeners know about the FIRE movement, financial independence, retire early. And I know you mentioned one couple in the book. How can people balance present and future work or strike the right harmony between the two? Yeah. So you bring up a really important question. So much of my work and so much of policymakers' work focuses on what's called myopia, which is focusing too narrowly on the present in a way that ignores the future. Well, there's this other side of the coin, which is known as hyperopia, in which you focus so much on the future that you ignore the present. And you know, if that sounds foreign, if you've ever had the experience of having a gift card for a restaurant and you're waiting, you know, I'm going to wait for the perfect occasion in the future, and then you wait and wait and wait, and the restaurant goes out of business, well, you've just acted in a hyperopic way. Now you've missed out. The fire movement, I think, is a really interesting case. I don't want to denigrate them because there is there are aspects of the movement that are quite good, quite useful, especially when we start thinking about being purposeful and intentional in our spending, et cetera. But you know, one sort of fallout of that movement is you, you read about these cases of people who, yes, they were able to be financially independent and quote unquote retire early, but at what cost? They couldn't do any of the things that they loved, right? And so this is a, a question, your question about how do I create harmony there? It's a question I really grappled with as I wrote the book because too much focus on the future. What sort of present life does that leave us? And also, by the way, what sort of future do we have when I look back and say, I wish I had done X, Y, and Z and really like lived, right? And so the question really does become one of harmony. How can I both live for today and live in a way that puts myself in a good position in the future? And then There's no easy answer here, but the way that I like to think about this is there may be times when it makes sense to spend the money. There may be times when it makes sense to celebrate right now, especially so that we can enjoy the experience now and later, right? Retrospectively. Now, the problem arises when I do that all the time. If I convince myself, you know, every time there's an opportunity to upgrade, whether it's with my car, my TV, or the concert tickets or whatever. If every time I do that, I take the opportunity, surely now I'm living myopically, right? And so I like to think about what other researchers have called the big why. To say like, well, what is the thing that drives me? What's really at the core of my values? What's most important to me? Is is food the most important thing to me? Is it family? Is it my house? Is it my car? Whatever the thing is, I'm not here to judge what those things are. But if I sort of bring my decisions back to that big why can help sort of orient me to say, well, in this particular experience, I'm going to go for it. In this one, I'm going to pull back a little bit. And my suggestion is that that may help. Appreciate that. And you mentioned spending. And many people listening to this podcast to our conversation today have saved for retirement, they've made sacrifices. Now they're thinking about other challenges like shifting from the saving mindset to the spending accumulation mindset. 
and deciding how they'll invest their time when they graduate from the world of full-time work. What have you found in your research that may be helpful to them on those two issues? I have some work that looks at how we, quote unquote, spend our time. I, I put quotes around it because it becomes an interesting question. You can almost apply the same way that we think about money to time. It's an investment, it's expenditure, et cetera. So this is work that I've done in collaboration with Marissa Sharif and C- Cassie Holmes. And one of the things we've found is that there's this kind of funny relationship between the amount of discretionary time we have, that is the time that we do, the time that we spend on doing our own pursuits. There's this funny relationship between that, our discretionary time and our happiness. And the funny relationship is that there's somewhat of a U-shaped relationship. But what that means is with very little discretionary time, I'm not that happy. With more, I become happier. But then with more and more, it's not that there's this linear relationship where the more time I have, the happier I am. But rather at some point, it sort of tails off. And by the way, Joe, that's not like, oh, people are unemployed or people who have the weekends. It's not that. We've sort of controlled for all that. It seems to be the case that when we have an excess of discretionary time and we spend that time in ways that would not be considered purposeful or social, well, now we start to see this sort of almost downturn in our happiness. One of the really interesting findings from that particular research project was that if you only look at time that's considered social or purposeful, and purposeful is sort of self-defined, right? Now what you see is this linear relationship so that the more time I have, the more discretionary time I have, so long as I'm spending it in these purposeful or social ways, the happier I am. And so it's, I think there's something very interesting there because what that suggests is that it's really not about how much time we have, but of course, and this is something that my collaborator Cassie has said, it's about how we spend that time. And now that's idiosyncratic, right? My, you know, my purposeful bit of time may be different from yours and, and yours from your spouse and so on and so on, right? But I do think there's something, and I don't mean to sound too Southern California about this, but there's something to the idea of being intentional <laughs> about the way that we spend that time. Absolutely. Intentional is bi-coastal. And <laughs> That's good. The country as well. So there are so many interesting experiments that you've conducted in your research and they're, they're covered in the book. One I want to ask you about involved Jane Fonda. I was just trying to picture this. Tell us about <laughs> navigating the plank and and what that demonstrated. Yeah, sure. So, you know, I was doing some work in a lab with Jeremy Balanson, who, who headed up the Virtual Human Interaction Lab. And it's sort of a lab that studies virtual reality. He's interested in virtual reality as a tool. And he has been for oh, more than 15 years. Now they have this, he and his team has created this demonstration to sort of show you the power of quote unquote, immersive virtual reality. That's where you're in a room and there's cameras and there's goggles on and you're walking around and you walk around physically around this just nondescript room, but then in your goggles, you see a world in front of you. And in a little demo of the power of virtual reality, he puts a plank down on the ground, like not a plank, a a wooden like two by four, right? You put on your goggles and I've done this. And again, you're in literally a room with just white walls and beige carpet. There's nothing in the room. You put on your goggles and in front of you, you see it looks like you're out in a field and it looks like there is a giant pit in front of you and stretched across this pit, which looks bottomless, by the way, is a plank. Now, you hear him say to you or you hear somebody say, go ahead, just walk across the plank. And in the virtual world, what you're seeing is looks like if you fall, you will surely fall to to your death. In the actual world, you're walking across this two by four. And so if you fall, you fall a matter of mere inches. (laughs) 
And let me tell you, it's terrifying. And I've done it and I've seen other people do it. And several years ago, Jane Fonda was writing a book about, well, not retirement per se, but about sort of the third act, the the later portion of our lives. And she'd come across some of my work and some of the work of other collaborators at Stanford where I was doing my graduate work. And she asked to be shown this demonstration. And I walked, I sat behind her and I sort of shadowed her as she she zipped, Joe, she zipped right across it. It was amazing. And the reason we were doing this is because I had been exploring the power of seeing virtual aged images in the virtual reality world. And she had sort of gotten wind of that, that research and then wanted to sort of see not only that, but just the virtual reality setup in itself. But that probably was the most fun I've had uh, <laughs> tangentially related to a research project. It would have been even more entertaining if she had brought Lily Tomlin along with Chris and Frankie. <laughs> Good reference. So you can't read your book and not begin to embrace your concept of becoming a time traveler and really envisioning your future self. And one strategy later in the book that caught my eye, I found very interesting. Tell us about reverse time travel and how that can help. Yeah, the idea behind reverse time travel, that sounds so much more sci-fi and so much more highbrow than it actually is. Basically, what that means is we have a natural inclination when we think about the future to start in the present and think ahead to the future. Of course, that makes sense. That's how we literally move through time. One of my doctoral students, who is now a professor at Indiana, Kate Christensen, she approached me and said, well, does it have to be that way? She's a very like creative thinker. She's somebody who always thinks a little differently than everybody else does. And she said, why couldn't we start in the future and travel back to the present? And I was like, that's a really interesting question. And so we've been engaged in this research project where we have people do just this. They start as their future self and move back in time. And what I mean by that, literally, rather than saying to somebody, hey, how similar are you to your future self? I say, how similar is your future self to you? It's a very different, it's a subtle shift, but it's like a subtle shift with a big difference. And what I mean by big difference is that it's a totally different perspective, right? I'm starting the future moving back rather than starting the present and moving forward. What we find is when we do that, when we have people start in the future and move back, they're naturally more likely to say that they feel a stronger sense of connection between the selves. And we've been finding some preliminary evidence that they're more likely to save when we start in the future and move back to the present. Yeah, I say preliminary because this paper is still sort of working its way through peer review. We're still sort of figuring out what's how strong these effects are and so on and so on. But I think it's a really interesting intervention because it's it's a relatively simple shift. And in certain contexts, it may matter. There's another strategy that jumped out to me. Think about your future you in days, not years. How can that be helpful? Yeah, so this is research done by Neil Lewis and Daphne Oyserman. They had this realization that days move fast, years move slow. And they they did something really interesting. They got people to think about all different sort of future events, you know, whether it's retirement or my kids going to college, things like this. And they framed those events as occurring in either days or years. So 30 years you'll retire, or in I think it's 10,950 days, something like this. Well, what happens is when you frame it in terms of the days, people feel as if the event is coming sooner. There's something ironic about this because it's the number is bigger, right? almost 11,000 versus 30. But 30 years feels like a vast expanse of time. Almost 11,000 days, that feels like a lot too. But but at the same time, I don't know, it's like one day goes in the next and I 
the next, and the next, and the next. I can understand why so many people would say that event feels like it's happening sooner. And not only did they feel as if it was happening sooner, they were considerably more likely to say that they'd want to start planning sooner for those events. I always enjoy bringing researchers and academics on the podcast because I really like the evidence-based approaches that all of you develop. And I always like asking just what are one or two ways, if you'd be willing to share that you're in your personal life using some of the things you've discovered in your research? Okay. It's a really good question. And there's always the concept of me search, which you know suggests we study the very things we're not good at. And for me though, a lot of this research that I've been doing and that others have been doing on sort of current and future selves, of course, it's focused on money and it's also focused on health. But lately, I've been really focused on the implications for time expenditures and time investments. You know, I'm in my mid-40s now. I'm at the stage where life has gotten a lot busier, both professionally and then I have two young kids and everybody knows it, right? Well, everybody knows it, but then when you experience it, then you really know it, right? (laughs) And I've had to think a lot more carefully about how I spend my time and what are the things I want to do? What are the things that I feel like obligated to do? But then most saliently, it's like my son's almost four, my daughter's seven. How do I want to look back on this time? How present do I want to have been? But it's it's not just literally being around, but it's like, how am I when I'm around? You know, and it's like since doing this work and since working on the book, I've kind of noticed there are plenty of times where I say, Well, I was there, I was there for dinner, I was there for bath time. And then I think, well, what was I doing? And I was well, I had to just fire up this email or I really needed to see what was happening on LinkedIn. <laughs> as you know, as if that as if any of those things are going to be the things I look back on. And it's like, I have other friends. One of my very best friends, his kids are older and he has a teenager, you know, and he said something to me like, things were rough this morning. I said, good morning in the wrong way. And now she's not talking to me. And it's like, that's not that far off. And so I, I want to look back when, when I eventually in several years or decades, I want to know, how did I handle this period of time? And it's not perfect. Like I lost my cool this morning. <laughs> you know, Cause I can only deal with so many 5.45 a.m. wake-ups, but it's something I'm constantly thinking about. So that's probably the main way that I've been applying these thinkings. And as you know, as people have told you, it flies by that period of time. It's obviously... Thank you so much, Hal, for for joining us. People will find links to your website and also to, to the book and really look forward to continuing to follow your work. Thanks, Joe. I really appreciate you having me on. They're great questions. Thanks again. Time for takeaways, three actionable ideas from this conversation with Hal Hirschfield today that you might want to consider. Number one, bring some imagination to your retirement planning. Do yourself a favor, step away from the retirement calculator, the projections, the spreadsheets, and really picture what will future you be like? What will you be doing? Who will you be investing your time with? You'll be glad you did. Number two, make your picture of future you vivid. I think this is one of the key takeaways that I got from the book and certainly from the conversation. You want to have a clear, detailed picture of what future you at various points might be doing and who you'll be spending time with. Make it clear so you can really develop that strong connection. It'll be the most helpful thing in this area. Number three, remember the big why. What's that thing that's most important to you that's going to drive future you? What's really going to be the thing that's going to help you make key decisions about where to invest your time and who to invest it with. And remember how that can help you make smarter decisions today 
that'll benefit you today and tomorrow. Thanks for listening to the Retirement Wisdom Podcast. If these episodes are helpful to you, we always appreciate the reviews that we get on Apple Podcasts or other platforms. So thank you for doing that. And if you're new to the podcast, take a look at our website, retirementwisdom.com. You can glance at our previous episodes across six seasons, a lot of great guests, interesting topics, a diverse mix of topics that can help you prepare to retire smarter. 